Hello, everyone. This is Mark from Sounder and Key, the producers of Ask Christopher West. We just want to let you know, for those who may be listening with young children, this episode contains conversations about the reality and beauty of the human body that may not be suitable for all ages. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy. From the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the Ask Christopher West podcast. We're happy to be here with you. Delighted. I'm especially delighted that my co-host is none other than my wife, Wendy. Thanks, love. You're welcome. We have a strange world we're living in. I heard the other day a friend of mine was listening to NPR, Mm -hmm. and they had a female athlete on there addressing the questions of men who have, as they say today, transitioned to become women. And this female athlete was saying this places them at an unfair advantage in sports contests. But the way she phrased it was very interesting. She said, she didn't, she, she didn't say it's unfair that men are now competing as women. She said, it's unfair that some women have a Y chromosome. Oh, my goodness. And this is the level of conversation we've gotten to. And pastorally, it's very difficult to speak to these issues with sensitivity and at the same time with clarity, because the very clarity is accused of being insensitive, yeah. right? But we, we cannot... We, we are losing all bearings about what makes a man a man and a woman a woman, and that this goes back to our genitals. At the moment of our birth, someone says it's a boy or it's a girl, and today with sonograms, they can do it sooner. But this is related to our, our genitals, and it reminded me of a funny story mm-hmm. that makes the point I'm trying to make here, Okay, that we can <laughs> we can be confused about these things, but in the end, a man is a man and a woman is a woman, and this is determined by our, you know, visibly, it's determined by our genitals. Mm -hmm. At the chromosomal level, it's determined by X and X and X and Y. But can you please tell, all of that was to lead up to this story. Can you tell the story, Wendy? You don't even know what it is, do you? No, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) You got the power right now. (laughs) I got the power. Uh, (laughs) When you were, when your nephew Jesse was a little boy and you were driving in a car somewhere and went over a hill. Oh, yeah. Remember that? Oh, it was so dear. (laughs) So my nephew, Jesse, was such a dear kid. Oh, my gosh. Jesse, if you hear this, I love you, my bud. Uh, Grown man now. But my mom used to love to drive kind of a little crazy every now and then. My mom had a little wild side to her. And we used to drive to my aunt and uncle's house uh, on these back roads that included one particular hill that was kind of thrilling. And and my mom loved to kind of build up for, here's the big hill, and all oh, the kids would get all excited. Well, this was a little later when I wasn't really a, a little kid anymore. I think I was probably, you know, 16 or 17 years old. And I was in the back seat of the car with my nephew as my mom sped over this hill. And I saw Jesse get that thrill, and he he kind of shyly looked over at me and said, Aunt Wendy, when we go over a hill like that, does your penis feel funny? 
love that he asked that question. And I didn't, my brother had never told me about that. So I, that was a learning experience for me about guys. Yeah, that, that I remember. Sent a little it's not so much penis. as a man anymore that I remember, but as a little boy, I definitely remember going over hills and like, ooh, that gave me a little tingle. <laughs> I don't know why. Today, though, my gosh, you, 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 we can't even, that's funny. Obviously, why is that funny? Yeah. That's funny because Aunt Wendy doesn't have a penis. And and that didn't occur to Jesse right But in our moment. world, right, that's not that's not funny anymore. Mm. Right? Because in our world they're claiming that there are some women with penises. That's what they're claiming. And we have to come up with some kind of way to speak clarity with compassion. Mm-hmm. Uh, it reminds me of there's a line in um the uh This is going back to the 70s when I was a little boy watching reruns of All in the Family. And there was a a line at the the beginning of the show when they were, Edith and Archie were singing that song. And Archie says, uh, Goyles were goyles and men were men. You know, back in the day, girls were girls, men were men. But we we can't even sing that anymore. Mm -hmm. We can't say those things anymore. In our cult, this is how off we are. We don't know that our body reveals the truth of who we are. And this is what theology of the body is all about. Getting us back in touch with these grounding truths that the body reveals the person. And all of us here, because of original sin, there's a disconnect between our our inner sense of ourselves and our bodiliness. John Paul II even says this. He says, in our broken condition, there is a subjective difficulty in identifying with our bodies. Wow. Say that phrase again. I like it. In our broken humanity, there Mm -hmm. is a subjective difficulty in identifying with our bodies. We say subjective, we mean like our personal experience. Interiorly, yes, subjectively, my experience of the world. It's it's a difficult experience to recognize that my body expresses me. Hmm. Uh, and, And we have all kinds of coping mechanisms for this, but we've taken it to quite an extreme in the modern world. And and we do, we need a solution to this disintegration of body and soul that is a result of original sin. But the solution we've come up with in the modern world, rather than, than a healing of the soul that gets us in touch with our bodies, we've resorted to, to a pr- an approach of dominating our bodies, manipulating our bodies to conform to what is really a, a disease of the soul. Mm. So I wasn't planning on launching into all that, but since it kind of came up, I thought it might be appropriate. You know I think it's awesome because, you know, we're taking people's questions and and we know that, you know, you speak on John Paul II's Theology of the Body, but not every listener has studied Theology of the Body. And I think, you know, opportunities just to summarize and to give a few points, I think mm-hmm. that's that really helps our discussion and our Good. ability to answer the questions. So I'm glad that all came out. All because of your nephew, oh Jesse, gosh, asking you about your penis. Such a question. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I have a question from a listener for you. This is from a listener named Elizabeth. She says, I love listening to your podcast. I can hear the love between you both so clearly. My question is, how can I live out the theology of the body in my marriage when my husband is very hostile to the Catholic faith and often verbally abusive? Mm. Bless you, Elizabeth. Bless you. 
I'm recalling that in a previous episode, we had a, a similar question and uh, certainly not afraid to, to take a look at it again. Hostile, verbally abusive. Um, this is not unfamiliar territory to me, not in our marriage. I, would, I have not ex- experienced verbal abuse from you, my love. But uh, growing up, I certainly experienced verbal abuse from my older brother. And it can be very damaging to your soul. It can leave a lasting impression. And I have had to work through... This is actually interesting that this is coming up right now because uh, I'll maybe say more about this in a few minutes, but I just had an amazing breakfast with my brother today on the day we're recording this in which he and I were connecting on a level about what we went through as, as children that I don't think we've ever really connected at. My point is this, Elizabeth. Number one, your sufferings here in being the target of verbal abuse, those sufferings are very real. They should be just, number one, acknowledged. And with reverence, I, I invite you to Open those sufferings in prayer to the suffering Christ, who suffers those sufferings with you, for you, and in you, that those sufferings you know are Christ's sufferings in you. And as those are opened up, they become powerful prayer, powerful intercession for your husband. Why does your husband hurt you in this way? Why does he cause you this kind of pain? Someone in his life has caused him very similar pain. When we don't go through the journey of healing our wounds, we become wounded wounders. We pass the pain on. And here I was this morning sitting with my brother who, yes, he's caused me a lot of pain, lasting pain in my life. But there I was sitting with him at breakfast this morning And I really was able to love him, Mm -hmm. really was able to offer him forgiveness and show him mercy. And he was sharing a story of of his own getting in touch with his own pain uh, that was a big part of his childhood. And I said, I know that pain. I know that pain because you dumped it on me. And I wasn't saying that with anger or bitterness. I was saying it with, with mercy and compassion. And he said, how did you get to this place? of being able to to show me this kind of mercy. And I said, actually, it was you, my love, that you have worked through the pain that I've dumped on you. You learned how to open that pain and make it an intercessory prayer. And you showed me mercy in the pain that I've caused you. And that, in turn, has a ripple effect that I was able to show that same mercy to my brother who caused me pain. Can't you just like close your eyes and just kind of picture the, the pain getting passed from person to person and then then the Lord sending mercy back mm. down the chain the other direction. Mm. You know, like he's he's the source of mercy. He's his heart yes. is the ocean of mercy that, you know, absorbs pain and returns a blessing. And that, that's his action that you were witnessing 
today. Yes, And yes. it's powerful, and we, we pray that for Elizabeth and for your husband, for that mercy, for the blessing to come and flow back into Elizabeth, into your husband, into those who've hurt him. Like, yes, let, it, yes, let it be, yes, Lord. Let yes, that flow yes. the other way, that the power of the resurrection, the power of the gospel to change the world, to make things new. This is our prayer for you. This is where the resurrection is no longer just a doctrine. It's no longer just a line in the creed, but it really becomes a lived experience that the suffering opened up, offered up, becomes redemptive and leads to new life. It's real. <laughs> it is real. Uh, the, the doctrine of the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus it becomes not just doctrine. It becomes lived experience in these kind of situations. And Elizabeth, if you are willing to go on that journey and open that pain that your husband has caused you to let God's mercy into it and learn to love your husband in his pain and learn how to have your pain transformed into compassion. This is what the catechism says in its section, and we'll put it in the uh, the notes of this episode, the Catechism says in the section praying the Our Father, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And I'm pretty sure I've mentioned this on a previous episode because it's one of my favorite lines in the Catechism, but it says, the heart that opens its pain to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit transforms that pain into compassion for the person who causes pain. As you allow Elizabeth, the Holy Spirit, into your pain, to let it become compassion for the pain your husband is in, and you allow that to become a prayer for your husband, you, my dear sister, are living the theology of the body. You're living it. That's it right there. Theology of the body is the call stamped right in our bodies to love as Jesus loves. That's how Jesus loves. Elizabeth, do that, and you will be living mm -hmm. the theology of the body. Amen. We have a question from Philip. His question is about the vocation of singlehood. He says, what does the church teach on the vocation of singlehood? I've had discussions with friends of many different ages, feeling that God is calling them to be single for the rest of their lives. I understand church teaching on consecrated laity and, of course, consecration through marriage and religious life. But could God call someone to just remain single for the rest of their life without any consecrated covenant? It's a great question. What's the name of the question? Uh, Philip. Philip. Thank you, Philip, for that question. Philip, we have to look at different senses of the word vocation here. Vocation has a very broad meaning, and I'm, I'm actually remembering, I, we did touch on this in a previous episode too, Vocation in the broadest sense, we all have the same vocation to learn how to love as God loves. The fundamental and innate vocation of every human being, says St. John Paul II, is to learn how to love as Jesus loves. Then John Paul II goes on to say, the church in her tradition recognizes two ways of living this out in, in totality, in mm -hmm. its totality. And here we're getting to a stricter meaning of the word vocation which refers in this stricter sense to a vowed state. And by that, we mean an irrevocable state, 
a state in which I've given my whole life to this until I die. Mm -hmm. And those two recognitions of a vowed state are marriage and consecrated celibacy or virginity. Uh, that's all in Familiaris Consortio, John Paul II's 1981 letter on the family in section 11, I believe. But we can also put that in the show notes for this episode. So that's the stricter meaning of vocation. There, we could have, you know, now we, let's address the question of the single person. The single person has not made, typically, a vowed commitment to remain that way. So, by and large, remaining single or for a time, a season in your life, being single is not itself a vocation per se in the strict sense of the word. But there is such a thing as a private commitment that the Lord honors, right? You might not be bound by it in terms of canon law, but I know of people who have, let's say their, their gift is music, they're a musician, and they want to tour the world. And that's how they're making a gift of themselves. That's how they're loving in the image of God. But they know to do that, to be married, would be a very difficult thing. So they make a private commitment. Lord, this is how I want to live out my life as a single person and as a musician. Or maybe you're taking care of your elderly parents and you feel a calling to that for a season. You're living out the call to love in that way, but you haven't made a vowed commitment to it. So, long about way of answering your question, uh, Philip, is could it be a real calling? Yes, with all of those distinctions made. Uh, but I could imagine a person who said, no, I feel the Lord's calling me to be single. I don't feel called to a particular religious congregation. I don't feel called to, to make vows in front of a, a, a bishop or something to make this official. But in my heart of hearts, I make this commitment before the Lord. I think the Lord can honor that. I think the Lord does honor that, and I think a person can make such a commitment, and I do believe that could be a legitimate calling. Yeah, absolutely. I think the word that Philip used was uh, consecrated, um, but I think you said vowed, and I think you, you're yes. both meaning the same thing there. And, um, you know, in addition to the the sense of people making that commitment for the rest of their lives, I think... There is also an understanding that because of that is a private commitment, that if that would change, there's no contradiction in that. You know, that because it's not, as you mentioned about canon law, you right. know, it's not, you're not making a promise that someone else is going to hold you to. It doesn't make it necessarily less meaningful, but it, it kind of leaves an openness to the spirit moving at a time in a circumstance that isn't foreseen in a different direction. So that, yeah, that would be a different situation than someone who believes I'm called to this for my whole life. So if, if you're feeling this is where I am right now and this could change in the future, then in the strict sense of the word vocation, I would not apply the word hmm. vocation okay. to, the, to that. Because then you're single for a time. But voc again, in the strict sense of the word vocation, it should be the rest we're of talking life. about I am doing this for the rest of my life, in the strict sense. So, And then I'll, I'll say this too, that there, you know, say you have a single person who said, no, for the whole, the whole of my life, I want to make this commitment. I might say then, why wouldn't you want to formalize that? There's something very meaningful, very significant in formalizing that commitment that, I don't know, would be something 
to consider. Maybe you have valid reasons for not wanting to do that, but I just hold it out. Maybe you would want to. We have many questions on certain themes, uh, and a theme that has come up in some recent questions has to do with, get ready, bikinis. Okay, then. Yeah, so I'm going to read this particular question. Was but it's it a not yellow polka dot bikini? I, I, you know, we didn't get into that. Was it a teeny exactly. weeny yellow polka dot bikini? Because that would be a different I'm so sorry. answer. I know. I know. And I will have to contact this anonymous questioner okay, to find out. Okay. okay, so here's this particular question. It's not the only one on bikinis. Um, I read in Carol Wojtyla's Love and Responsibility that a certain outfit can be modest if it is used in accordance with its objective function. Yes, I, that's a good section to refer to. He even stated this can be the case if the person is, quote, partially nude as yes. a result. yes. So she says, or she, or he actually doesn't say, it's an anonymous question. I assume that this means it's okay for a woman to wear a bikini to the beach or the pool. Am I correct? Now here's another part of the question. I also saw a photo online of a woman acrobat performing in front of John Paul II at the Vatican. And she was wearing a bikini. So her question is, is this okay? Is it okay in a commercial, in a show, a movie, on the beach? Great questions. Mm -hmm. I also know of a picture, I have it on my computer actually, of John Paul II saying mass in Papua New Guinea. And there is a bare-breasted woman doing the first reading. Wow. Yeah. So what does that say? There are some people... I've seen this online where they point to that and say, this is clearly not a, a valid pope because he led a bare-breasted woman into the, the liturgy. Well, this is a question of cultural context. And I'm so glad that this questioner is already familiar with love and responsibility because that's the, the go-to resource here. That's where I would point you. John Paul II, in his book, Love and Responsibility, on the question of, of modesty gives such a beautifully nuanced answer that I would strongly urge every Catholic, every human being on the planet to read, because we usually get this wrong. We're usually imbalanced. We're usually coming with our own prejudices, fears, concerns, issues, whether they be of the licentious nature or a prudish nature, and then you have quarters in the church that just battle it out back and forth. And I, I know, you know, esteemed colleagues of mine come down with a very hard line and say, women should not wear bikinis. That is not my position. That is not, I believe, a sound position, objectively speaking. I understand subjectively there are certain circumstances in this world where it might not be advisable for a person to be wearing a bikini, but that's a different thing than saying it is objectively wrong to do so. And there are some people who conclude that, and that it's not John Paul II's position, it's not my position, but we need to give some understanding of what modesty is, right? So John Paul II, in Love and Responsibility, gives various situations in which a woman in a, he uses the phrase bathing costume, a woman in a bathing costume is not being immodest when she wears that bathing suit, let's say the way we would say it, when she wears a bathing suit to go swimming, so long as her intention in wearing that is to go swimming. 
if her intention, see, this is the point. Let me actually rewind and say this. This is very important. Clothing in itself cannot be modest or immodest hmm. because clothing is an inanimate object. Mm-hmm. Modesty is a virtue, right? And only human beings can be virtuous. So we have to look at the motivation of the human being in wearing a certain piece of clothing to talk about modesty or immodesty. John Paul II says, a person is being immodest when he or she dresses in such a way with the specific intention of arousing lust in the other. Mm -hmm. Then one is either dressing immodestly or behaving immodestly. So here you could have a woman who is dressed in a kind of frumpy way, covered from head to toe, if you will, but is behaving in such a way to arouse lust. She's being immodest. Whereas you could have a woman dressed in a bikini who is, you know, not flaunting it walking down the street in order to draw attention to herself with lustful gazes, but is dressing in that way because she's going to the beach and she's going to jump in the water. And that's, there would be nothing per se wrong with that. That said, there's so many layers to all of this. Isn't there? Uh, even there, a woman has to recognize how her dress might affect other people in certain circumstances. I would hold this out. I would say, if a woman has a proper understanding of male weakness, this will go a long way in her not wanting to dress in ways that might provoke that weakness in men. Mm -hmm. I remember in our early relationship, Wendy, it was news to you, some of the things I was sharing with you about what guys struggle with. Yeah. And it it led you to some adjustments in your thinking about mm-hmm. what was, you know, how you, you didn't want to be seen in that way. And you, did, you didn't have any idea that you were being seen in that way. Right. There was just an ignorance on my part. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I it's, let us not claim that we know what is going on in a person's heart when she's putting on a bikini, right? Let's not, she's being immodest. Well, we don't know if she's being immodest. Mm. Uh, maybe she's being, maybe she's ignorant, but we can't, we can't just say that is immodest or that is always wrong to dress that way. Immodesty flows from the intention of the heart, and that's what we have to know. And that's where John Paul II knows that this woman in Papua New Guinea, where women are bare-breasted in that culture, she is not behaving immodestly mm-hmm. in that way. In fact, John Paul brings up the, the situation in Love and Responsibility where he says, in some of these cultures where women were topless and missionaries came in and started insisting that they cover up their breasts, uh, this actually led to an, in, to an immodesty because women were recognizing, oh, when I cover my breasts in our culture, it was actually drawing more attention to their mm-hmm. breasts than it was before they were covered. Mm-hmm. And so the culture started a shift where women were covering their breasts specifically with the intention of drawing attention that they weren't getting previously. Mm. So that became immodest in that situation. So you can see there's so many layers here mm-hmm. you have to look at. I hope that is helpful for our questioner. 
And we'll move on to another question here, but I, I want to <laughs> I want to share a funny story that that's call, call, being called to mind here because we're having this conversation. I was an anthropology major in college, and I studied some of these cultural differences. And there were some funny stories about what would happen when missionaries would show up in certain territories. And I have two funny ones. One was a priest was on mission in an Indian tribe, and, and you know Native American culture in South America, and he had pretty much a comfort level with the the bare-breasted women in the culture, but there was a, a superior of the order coming to visit this tribe. And I know, I know you know this story. Uh, Wendy does, because I've shared yes. it. So the, the superior was coming, and he was nervous that maybe the superior wouldn't be so comfortable with these bare-breasted women. Understandably. Yes. So he, he handed out all these t-shirts to the women. And he wanted to make it look like he was, uh, you know, really giving great catechetical instruction to, to all the men. So he handed out Bibles to the men, and he, he had them all line up on the beach for the superior when he was showing up in the boat. <laughs> and the women had cut circles out of the T-shirts so that their breasts were all the more. They, they needed to be free. <laughs> they, needed, <laughs> they were constrained. They were constrained. The women could they not understand yes. what I'm, you know, that I, I, the intention was to cover their breasts. So they had big, big circles cut out and the men had taken the Bible and kind of made it into a headdress, which was uh, you know, <laughs> a little embarrassing. Yeah, a little embarrassing for that missionary. Another funny story is um, actually a priest told me this. He was on mission in Africa and had heard this story of uh, an Irish priest who was a little uncomfortable with the way women were dressed. All they wore was a straw skirt. They were topless, but they had the straw skirt on. And this woman came to visit him one time in his straw little hut of a rectory. And he was kind of uneasy with it. And he was like, could you cover up? He was trying to motion, could you please cover up? And she just took her straw skirt and lifted it up to cover her breasts. <laughs> of course, there's nothing under the straw skirt. So oh dear, that didn't go so well. That was uncomfortable. The point in all of this, dear questioner and all you listeners out there, is that uh, as the catechism says, modesty is culturally conditioned, right? But every culture has some form of of modesty. I'll, I'll share this one last story. I remember watching a documentary some years ago of a Native American tribe. Again, this taps into my whole interest in anthropology. And these women wore nothing, but whenever they sat down, and there are no chairs, there are no furniture, they sit on the on the ground. They would oh, oh, the way a woman sat was always to pull her heel up between her legs to veil her genitals when she sat. Mm -hmm. That was appro their appropriate form of modesty in that culture. Mm -hmm. So modesty has many, many different forms, and we cannot simply say, due to our own cultural upbringing and standards of what would cause me a problem, that this always causes other people mm. problems. And we have, to, we have to respect the interiority of everyone, the that this is a matter that's going on in their their own hearts. Not that we can't say there are standards in certain cultures, but it's a delicate matter. It is delicate. Thank you. Indeed. I hope that's helpful. We have had several questions about bikinis, and I just find that interesting that it's on people's minds, you know, when you start talking about uh, the body reveals the person and 
purity of heart, a lot of the themes that we can get into and in reflecting on theology of the body, yet this question comes up. And I think one of the things that can be a real painful thing for a woman is when a woman is, you know, in cultural standards, especially beautiful, that she can be then somehow blamed by both men and women for being sort of a cause of sin mm -hmm, in other people. Mm -hmm. And it can lead to like a, a self-rejection that uh, somehow something that's in some ways out of her control, you know, the, her appearance, other people are, are calling that sort of sinful. And I think you know, there is interior work that we do as women to try to embrace the bodies that express our person, to recognize that beauty can be a gift to others and that it's a challenge because there are those who are resentful of it, those who are threatened by it. You know, there are reactions that are unjust that yeah, come against women. It stirs a hornet's nest of it, all it kinds does. of different reactions. Yeah. And we can be so quick. You're bringing up a really important point. I'm so glad you're bringing it up. We can be so quick to dump our own junk on a certain situation rather than being mm -hmm. willing to look at why am I getting triggered in this way? Why am I getting, why is this my reaction? Mm -hmm. and, and the effect that that can have on that person uh, can be profound and painful. Yes. Yeah, so I think the question, if it's a question we're looking at as a woman for my own self, you know, I like this bikini bathing suit for whatever reasons they are, that sense of looking for a purity of heart that both embraces the, the body that expresses myself and honesty about whether we're looking for attention in ways that are not the way the Lord wants to bless us, or whether we're expressing our freedom and our joy in our physical being, you know, in activities that, you know, involve wearing a bikini. You know, all those questions are deep and personal. But I think one of the things I just, I want to encourage people to ask those questions and if you want to wear that, we're using the word bikini, and I'm not always sure what people mean by that. You know, yeah. Is it just a two-piece yeah. bathing suit, or is it a very minimalistic thing that actually is maybe you know harder to justify, yeah. I guess? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not sure how people are hearing me when I say this, but that we can have a purity of heart that expresses itself in a joy and purity in our face that is beautiful and attractive and a blessing. And I think that that's what we should be striving for. And if, if you're, you know, say, trying to advise a daughter, you know, this is kind of the stage where I am. It's so delicate because we don't want to be communicating negativity about this young woman's body, which tends to be attractive, you know, in, in any way kind of expressing a caution, oh, no, didn't you know your body's bad? You can't let people see it. You don't want that no, to come no, across. No. But at the same time, yeah, it's a delicate thing because there comes a time where I have to help my daughter understand what are the real dangers, what yeah. are the real concerns yeah. about the way a fallen world treats others to look at your body and wanting mm -hmm. to, to guard and protect. This is the key point I really think is very important, that 
we cover our bodies not because they're bad. We cover our bodies because they're so good and we feel or should feel an instinctive need to protect that goodness from the degradation of lust, from the selfish gaze, from the gaze of someone who just wants to treat you as a thing. So any conversation about modesty has to come from a place of understanding the true value and dignity and goodness and beauty and glory of the body, and not from a place of thinking, oh, that's dirty, that's shameful in of itself, and you should just cover it up. Um, When that's the attitude, we got a major problem. And there, John Paul II says, what often passes as purity or modesty actually masks a deep immodesty and impurity. Mm. So I guess I would say to women to pray for those who have in any way accused you, you know, blamed you for men's sin or for other people, you know, having lustful thoughts and don't don't take that mm. into your heart that if you happen to be gifted with a particular beauty, that's a gift of the Lord and it's meant to be a blessing that is a consolation and a joy to others. And that is a good thing. So I want to affirm that and ask you to, you know, as you sit with that, allow the Lord to direct you in how you share that gift with others, with peace about yourself and confidence in God's good gifts to you. I hope, I know that's kind of a diversion from the question that was asked about bikinis, but I think it's It's part of the heart of what's going on there. It's a very important reflection. Thank you, love, for sharing that. Thank you, everybody, for the questions you send us. We have to wrap up this episode, but we would invite you, if you want to submit your question, go to AskChristopherWest.com and submit your question there. If you are interested in learning more about Theology of the Body, I invite you to consider taking the free course that we offer. It's just a mini course. You get four short videos with a little study guide. You can learn more at AskChristopherWest.com forward slash free course. We always want you to remember you are a gift. Become what you are, as St. John Paul II says. Amen. Ask Christopher West comes to you from the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione and production by Sounder and Key. Christopher and Wendy hope that the advice shared on this show is helpful to you, but ask you to remember that they are not licensed counselors. If you're facing serious difficulty, you can find a list of trusted psychologists and counselors in the show notes. You know what? I just have one more thing. I'm so glad you don't have a penis. Oh, thanks. That all works and well. I'm so glad I do because kind of how it works. Why it we sure have five is. awesome kids. It thanks is. be to God. Absolutely. <laughs>